Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, China has officially charged the two Michaels. What does this mean for them and Canada-China relations moving forward? The education minister has announced plans for school come September. And the city of Hamilton enters stage two. But it's not New Year's Eve. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, we have uh, certainly heard uh, the terrible news uh, earlier today that uh, China has now, after, I guess, 557 days, after 557 days, uh, in confinement, uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver have now been charged uh, with basically spying uh, charges uh, in China. Obviously, when that happens, it is not good because the conviction rate is uh, pretty much almost 100 uh, percent. And this is not good news uh, for Canadians at all. Let's play a clip of the prime minister talking. And, and you know, unfortunately, during his uh, daily news conference today, he didn't even mention the two Michaels until uh, the media brought it up, which I thought was kind of interesting. I thought he might start with this uh, right off the top. But once questions, here's a uh, question. Here's what the prime minister had to say. Uh, we are, of course, uh, disappointed uh, with the decision uh, and the next step taken by the Chinese uh, in the case of the two Michaels, and we offer uh, all our support and sympathies to uh, the families of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who uh, are obviously uh, living a, a difficult moment today, as they have been for well over a year with the arbitrary detention of two Canadian citizens. Uh, we uh, have continued to express our uh, disappointment uh, with the Chinese decision, with the Chinese uh, detention of these two Canadians. We will continue to advocate uh, for their release, for their return to Canada, uh, while highlighting, of course, uh, that uh, we, uh, we have an independent judicial system that is uh, going through its rigorous processes in a way that is separate from uh, political interference. Uh, this is an important issue that we will keep working on, not with uh, just directly with the Chinese government, uh, but uh, alongside our allies and friends around the world who are equally concerned with this arbitrary detention. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute, and is with us now. Charles, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good to hear from you. Uh, what are your thoughts on the timing of this and the fact that this happened the day after the Prime Minister lost his seat at the UN Security Council, or didn't win a seat, I should say, correct myself. Uh, is there any sort of uh, correlation there, any connection, or is this just uh, coincidence? No, I think there's probably a connection there. If Canada was a member of the Security Council, we'd have a bit more leverage over China than we do right now. And obviously, um, you know, this matter is connected to uh, B.C. Superior Court Justice Heather Holmes' um, decision on the uh, Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou's case, which is that uh, the extradition hearing will continue to proceed, that there are not uh, bases to think that the United States um, extradition request is not consistent with Canadian law. And so we have a process where, as you say, Kovacan's favor were held for 570 days, for a good chunk of the beginning of that, they were held in an unknown location by the Ministry of State Security. Then they were handed over to China's judicial authorities. And at that time, there's a Chinese institution called the People's Procuratorate that develops the case and does the investigation. And so it would have been possible, say, if Meng had been uh, released back to China, that 
the Chinese authorities could have said, well, the procurator has finished its investigation and find that there's insufficient evidence to proceed to trial, therefore we're, we're releasing Colbrick and Spaver. But, um, you know, Meng is uh, continuing to be considered by our system, so now they've announced that there is a basis for a trial on uh, espionage, and, you know, the, the, the trial will proceed, and we'll see if, if Colbrick and Spaver uh, end up serving a very long sentence in China, or if the Chinese authorities will decide to um, release them after the sentence is handed down, as they did with uh, Kevin Garrett after he spent 778 days in Chinese custody. Uh, Charles, are you surprised the Prime Minister didn't mention this off the top of his daily press conference? He didn't even address it in his statement until after he was uh, questioned by reporters. Well, I think so. I mean, clearly, you know, the fact that these men have been held under horrendous conditions through no fault of their own, with no evidence that they've committed any uh, crime against Chinese law for 570 days, and our government keeps informing us that it's their top foreign relations priority, and they have not been able to achieve the release of these gentlemen, suggests that our government policy has not been the right one. Um, And I I guess Mr. Trudeau is reluctant for that obvious information to be highlighted, and therefore, you know, made a statement, as you say, well into the press conference, where he talks about how we do our best for consular cases and that kind of thing. But this is clearly about Canada-China relations and whether our government has been furthering our interests vigorously enough, using enough smart engagement to uh, to ensure that China does not continue to violate the international norms of diplomacy and, and trade in uh, our relations with China. And I think, um, you know, it's time for a reset and a reconsideration of how we go about engaging with that regime. Are Canadians safe in China, considering what has happened to the two Michaels? Should there be a travel advisory of some sort? Well, this is the question. I mean, the thing is, the Chinese strategy has been, you know, from their point of view, successful up to now. Um, Meng has not ended up in the United States, for example. Um, So it does, you know, our complete lack of any kind of meaningful response and are continuing to give concessions to the Chinese regime with regard to, um, you know, not banning Huawei or not uh, pursuing their their agents of influence and who who attempt to influence policymakers in Canada to favor China or menace uh, persons in Canada the Chinese regime finds hostile to their purposes or or our inability even to uh, to stand up to their ref- refusal to fulfill their commitment to us to collaborate in stemming the flow of fentanyl out of South China into Canada you know this suggests that that this hostage diplomacy is working for them so they could be emboldened to start to engage in similar activities against other Canadians in China if our government does not make a clear statement that this is completely unacceptable and that the Chinese regime will suffer consequences if they continue to um, behave in such an outrageous way. Um, many have said that the Prime Minister is bowing to uh, the Communist uh, Chinese Party. Um, now that the UN seat has been lost, will he change his approach? Well, certainly if his idea of, of um, you know, making concessions to uh, China uh, hopes that China would not be mobilizing other countries to um, not choose Canada uh, as um, one of the 
you know, as the, the third of the two of the three candidates for two UN uh, non-permanent seats, uh, that clearly hasn't worked. So, you know, it, it seemed to me a bit of a stretch in any event. Um, Canada's international performance has just not been fulfilling the myth that we have about Canada as a responsible stakeholder in global affairs. And I think the UN decision um, makes that clear. And aside from which, I think a lot of countries are concerned about our um, closeness to China and how that would influence how we behaved in the Security Council. So they've gone with Ireland and, and Norway instead. And, um, you know, we've, we've been left out in the cold. So I think if we do want that Security Council seat, that we'd better start taking um, our role in the world more seriously and have a more realistic assessment of um, how other nations are perceiving Canada today. Um, there's been many uh, comments uh, before this and even after uh, or during COVID-19 how we have just become so interwoven and so dependent on China in so many different ways, whether it's our educational institutions, whether it's our health care, uh, e- economically. But it seems right now, Charles, we're being pinned here. There is absolutely nothing that we can do. Are we now a slave to China economically? We have no recourse. We have to keep bowing to them. Well, I guess it's really a question of, you know, to what extent are we prepared to take a Chinese retaliatory hit if, in fact, that was the direction that China went? In other words, if we started to stand up to China to, um, you know, insist on inspecting shipments for fentanyl and to crack down on their on their spies in Canada or uh, to put some of their officials... Um, who have large amounts of unexplained wealth invested in our country on the Magnitsky list, which would then freeze those assets and hit them a bit in the the pocketbook. Um, If China decided to continue its retaliatory, uh, arbitrary violation of of trade contracts, as they've done with the canola seeds and, um, you know, appear to be preparing to do with regard to Canadian wood exports into China, all on completely false grounds. Um, You know, there's nothing wrong with our export product there. Um, would we be prepared to take the hit? Right now, uh, before they started to do the canola thing and other restrictions, our a total amount of our e- exports that went to China was about 4.7% of our total exports, contrasting with 78% of the United States. Um, now we're down below 4%. So, you know, if the Chinese retaliate against us and we do something reciprocally, they will hurt more than we will because they... They do three times the amount of um, imports into Canada as we do uh, exports out to China because of their massive network of non-tariff barriers and other. Is that where we're going, Charles? Is that going to happen? I mean, you know, it seems that the world impression of China has greatly changed. And is it time for allies to unite against this sort of aggression? I think this is the direction that things are going. Of course, um, you know, our... The United States has not been a team player in this regard and has been going at China um, bilaterally, and including engaging in, in side deals with China, which go against the Canadian interests. So when they get the Chinese to agree to import a huge amount of soybeans, say, from the United States, it means that China will not be purchasing Canadian or Brazilian soybeans. So I think with our like-minded allies, um, you know, including Australia, uh, New Zealand, Japan, um, South Korea, um, most of the uh, of the countries of uh, Europe that are that are liberal democracies and not fragile democracies in the pocket of China, that it's time for us to establish um, a united front and set standards that 
demand that if China is not going to get into compliance with their commitments to the international rules-based order, that we simply cannot continue to uh, deal with them and accept um, their their uh, investment and trade on political conditionalities. Um, you know, so so we have to we have to stand for the rules-based order because if we don't, what sort of world are we going to have if it becomes one where might is right? And uh, ca- countries like Canada are expected to be uh, subordinate to the will of superpowers. Uh, unfortunately, is the lack of U.S. leadership splitting the allies and giving the the Chinese Communist Party traction in that regard? Oh, I think absolutely. And the U.S.'s withdrawal from supporting um, fragile democracies has given China a space to go into into um, you know countries like uh, even Greece and uh, to get them to um, to uh, serve Chinese interests in exchange for Chinese investment. And, you know, they do a lot of infrastructure on the Belt and Road Initiative, which gives um, corrupt politicians an opportunity to enrich themselves considerably because the Chinese regime doesn't look too closely at, um, at whether the money is going to the purpose that they have um, given it out for. So from that point of view, China sees an opportunity in the... Um, the uh, lack of of trust for the for the U.S. by its allies, and uh, is going in there to take as much advantage as possible. Even here in Canada, you know, I, I spoke to the uh, Commons Industry Science and Technology Committee about um, the global phenomenon of China seeking to to buy up strategic assets in countries around the world that have been weakened. Uh, who have been economically weakened by the COVID-19 crisis. And, uh, you know, we're, I think Canada's considering looking into that more closely and, and uh, ensuring that we don't end up endangering our national security by selling assets to a foreign state that, that uh, could use them in ways that would be hostile to, a global, to the global order and global peace. Is the free world reacting to the, these charges against the two Michaels? Is this a story that really only falls on Canadian ears? I think it's largely a Canadian story. I mean, the thing is that, you know, it's large. It's quite predictable what's happened. Um, but, uh, you know, there are comparable situations with many countries, particularly uh, Japan and Australia. So, um, you know, Kovrick and Favor are well-known cases in Canada, but uh, most Canadians would not be aware of the uh, of the comparable things that China is doing with other countries to their nationals. How does the Prime Minister move forward on this, considering the loss of the U.S. Uh, U.N. Security Council seat? I mean, it seems both domestically and abroad, over-promising, under-delivering, trying to be too many things to too many people, not making a call. Where does the where does he go now? There just there doesn't seem to be a goal on the horizon right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, Canada made a lot of compromises with dictatorships in the hope of getting that vote uh, for the um, for the committee. So, you know, it. Uh, I guess I, I read somewhere that someone said if you sell out your principles, it's particularly bad if you don't get anything back for it. Um, so, from that point of view, I think we de- we do need to do a major uh, foreign policy review. We do have uh, the special committee on Canada-China relations meeting in the House of Commons. And I think that perhaps the government will be amenable to the recommendations that that committee will make in their report. Um, I think that 
in general, it looks like Canada's foreign role and particularly relations with China will be an issue in the next election. So it's probably incumbent on the government um, if they if they're looking to to uh, buttress their support to reevaluate what they've been doing with China, where it's going wrong, and to uh, and to do a reset and establish a new basis for engagement with China that will better protect Canadian interests and hopefully result in Kovrigan's favor getting home before long. Charles, if the two Michaels were released today and arrived by tomorrow, what kind of condition would they be in? What would they be like? Well, we haven't had any consular access with them since January. Um, you know, and we could be, um, the Chinese could easily be allowing us to at least communicate with them through a video conference or just cell phone, and they have not. So one cannot help but suspect that one of these gentlemen may not be in the best of condition, and China doesn't want that to be known. Um, uh, certainly, um, you know, I think it depends on the individual. Uh, Kevin Garrett um, was sustained by his Christian faith in prison and read the Bible, and, uh, you know, today he seems to be functioning at a very high and effective level. But uh, I don't know, if I was subjected to 570 days of uh, torturous treatment, um, you know, inadequate nutrition and uh, unsanitary conditions with no privacy, no no uh, no legal recourse, um, limited contact with my family, I wonder uh, in what sort of mental state I'd be when uh, eventually I was released, if that ever happened. Where does this, uh, and again, many were saying that the, the decision on the Huawei 5G depended on the situation with the, the two Michaels. Has that changed in any way? Will we hear a decision on 5G? I haven't. Uh, you know, the government certainly doesn't seem to be uh, coming through with their commitments in that regard. I mean, previously, we've been told it would happen before the election, and then we were told it would be happening shortly after the election. Uh, it's quite a long time, no sign of any decision. In the meantime, um, you know, Bell and Tellus, who previously had intended to use the uh, very reasonably priced Huawei technology in the 5G, are now uh, looking at Ericsson and Nokia. They haven't ruled out putting 5G in, but it looks as if, as the decision is put off longer and longer, that um, Bell and Tellus don't want to get uh, behind uh, Rogers, which is already committed to non-Huawei Ericsson equipment for 5G. So this whole thing may simply uh, may simply peter out if, in fact, there's no space for 5G technology because the companies have already installed the Scandinavian options. Mm. Um, uh, we were waiting for the other shoe to drop after the court appearance, the B.C. Supreme Court appearance by the Huawei CFO. Is this the shoe that's dropped? Well, I think so. I mean, it's still possible that her extremely well-qualified team of lawyers will be able to get her off on maybe a technicality about the process of her arrest at the Vancouver airport in December 2018 or about the the materials that the United States has been providing to Canada in support of the extradition request. But um, it looks as if this thing with Meng Wanzhou could go on for quite a few years with uh, appeals and delays and uh, you know, that will be something that we'd have to live with in the Canada-China relationship for a long time to come. Charles Burton has been with us, senior fellow, McDonald-Laurier Institute. China has now formally laid spying charges against the two Michaels. Charles, thanks so much for the time and insight, as always. Much appreciated. Be well this weekend. You too. Take care.
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, news coming out of the education minister for this uh, latest press conference from uh, the Premier of Ontario. And uh, the government promised uh, several weeks ago that before the end of the school year, they would give us some sort of template as to what was going to happen or what some of the options were on how we try to predict what is going to happen come uh, come September. Here is what Education Minister Stephen Lecce had to say. What we're allowing is to return from an adaptive model to a more conventional model. And that will make sense. I mean, in in the abstract, we don't want a one-size-fits-all. You can't in the size of this our province. We need to make sure that there is an element of variance to allow boards with low risk to move to the next phase. And likewise, if if there is a risk to the province, and the second wave, it allows us, of course, to scale back as well. Let's bring in Lauren Bialystok, Assistant Professor, University of Toronto. Lauren, thanks so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. You too. Thanks for having me. Your thoughts on uh, what the education minister had to say. Uh, is it time to get the, the kids back to school for September with, uh, I guess it's basically every other day, 15, maximum 15 per class each time, and, uh, and a blended model of online uh, uh, learning as well as in class, and I guess the option of all three in some form, uh, depending on which direction uh, COVID-19 goes on, or goes in rather. What are your thoughts on all of this? Well, the thrust of the issue is really which of these models are we going back to? The announcement Mm -hmm. was, I'd say, disappointingly vague in some ways. On the one hand, we know that the decision should be responsive to the data, and the data are constantly emerging. And also, as the minister stressed, uh, different regions in the province are facing different situations. So I think it's great that they've empowered the school boards to make more local determinations. But what this means is that we only have a menu of possible options now and no real information about what any particular region will be doing or what the benchmarks will be for continuing on to a different stage. And uh, that, that just leaves a lot of parents, I would think, feeling still very much in limbo. Is that possible, considering we don't know what direction this uh, pandemic is going to go in? Are we asking for questions that we simply can't answer at this time? I think this is a delicate balancing act. On on the one hand, we do have to leave room for changing information and we have to leave room for regional variation. And I applaud the government for taking that into consideration. At the same time, no quality education is going to happen if planning isn't possible. And what it sounds like from this announcement is that a lot more will still have to happen over the summer at the board level primarily to prepare teachers and their communities for returning with what sounds like initially an adapted hybrid model, which will be then, it sounds like, reevaluated at the end of September. But again, the benchmarks for what that evaluation will reveal weren't given. Uh, so it makes it very hard for teachers to plan their work, although the government was promising some additional resources for online learning. And it makes it especially hard for families, especially because of the expectation that at least one parent will be able to stay home with any school-aged children whenever necessary, for as long as necessary, if their region is not able to open fully. And, and that really instantiates a domino effect in people's lives. Under the circumstances of this pandemic, what other options do we have? What should the government have done today that it didn't do? I think uh, 
they're doing a lot, and it's clear that they've been speaking to the right people, experts in public health, experts in education, parents and families. And these different alternatives have been batted around for quite a while, and in some cases tried in other jurisdictions, like Quebec is a little bit ahead of us and can provide a bit of a model for what the adapted return to school might look like. But I think what we want from the government today is a little more than just these are the options we're batting around and we'll see what the data say. Something more concrete like everyone across the province will go back on an alternating daily basis with a maximum of 15 students in each class starting in September. And then region by region, we will assess the following information at the following time in order to decide what the next stage will look like. Something like that would be easier for people to plan around. I heard the government say both that the adapted delivery model will be available for everyone and that in some regions they may have to stay with exclusively remote learning. And I'm not sure where those fault lines are. And I also heard that parents will have a choice. So if parents aren't comfortable sending their kids back to school, they can keep them at home. But I'm not sure where parental choice factors in if only one model is available in a given place. Um, So I think we just need more clarity about what the steps will be and what information will be necessary before specific determinations could be made. Is it, are, are we able to provide that clarity now? Is that not the issue? Are we not asking again for things that we just don't have the answers to at this point? I'm still not understanding what wasn't said today that should have been. Okay. Like what so, specifically, like you were talking a bit about dates. There should be certain dates. So by here we know this, by, by this date we know that. Uh, is that where you're going? I'm not sure what else we were looking for, you were looking for, that wasn't mentioned today? What can they do to make this better? Um, So I'll give you an example. Uh, One of the things that was said is that when students go back to school, although, again, it wasn't clear to me exactly when this is going to happen across the board, there will be a cohort approach, which means a maximum number of 15 students with one teacher and they will not be physically distanced for all the reasons that sick kids and others have pointed out. And I think, okay, that makes good sense. How does the math check out? We do not have a 15 to 1 student to teacher ratio in the public schools right now. How does this check out for the at-home schooling that presumably those kids will be doing on their off days that their parents will be responsible for overseeing? And who is their teacher going to be for those days? Those are the kinds of questions that I think could be answered in more detail now and would allow people to assess the viability of one plan or or another and then make choices about trade-offs, like how much do we want to trade off the, the question of crowding in classrooms against the question of funding and teacher capacity. And we also need to keep in mind that teachers are still negotiating their contracts and there was significant labor disruption before the pandemic even started that hadn't really been resolved. So those are the kinds of questions that I think need a little more explication. Do you think parents have the patience for that anymore? I mean, we're in the situation that we're in. It's nobody's design. And now we're trying to figure out a a way out of it moving forward. Um, I'm hearing more resistance than proactivity here. Is that me? Sorry, do you mean, do you mean, yeah, like, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure sure what else, well, I'm not sure what else they could have said that would have made it more clear. 
um, they did allude to the fact that every situation would be different. So depending on areas in rural in rural areas where obviously infection isn't as great, there would be less need for this. So again, isn't every situation different? I'm not sure what else we can add to the mix at this time to provide clarity. Well, if the government is clear that regions above a certain threshold uh, in terms of pandemic numbers can proceed with a certain kind of learning and that regions that don't meet that threshold can't, then I don't, I, I think they should be able to say which ones those are now. And again, this has already been ambient. We know that the GTA, for example, is likely to be the very last in the province to reach complete reopening, and that makes good sense. But as there are so many school boards in the province, um, it feels a bit like the government has downloaded this to the school board level so that we now have to wait for each school board to make its own determinations. Whereas I think that we could be saying a little more concretely which regions are going directly into the adapted delivery model with the expectation that after September they move back into full reopening, numbers permitting, and which regions are going to hang back and persist in remote learning for a bit longer and so forth. But because they are appropriately leaving flexibility to the different school boards and regions, the global announcement feels pretty uninformative at this point. And I'm I'm looking forward to hearing more of the specifics with, with the government, not just passing the buck to school boards. All right. Uh, Laura, uh, Lauren Bialystok has been with us, Assistant Professor, University of Toronto. Lauren, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. Let's bring in Andy Kidder, People for Education. Andy, thanks for taking the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, I am. Thank you. Another big day in education. What are your thoughts on what you've heard? Now, the thing is, I have to confess right now, I haven't heard the announcement. Um, it, I was listening to your previous caller. I think uh, that basically our- what they basically what they said, Annie, real quick, is uh, every other day uh, for students, maximum of fifteen, and uh, a combination of in class, a rebooted. Uh, online learning system and then a combination of the two and they've asked for boards to be ready for all three. And so I think that our they, our concern is the same as our concern's been for the last couple of months in terms of uh, what, what, what evidence and whose evidence are we listening to and how is this plan being made? A, a lot of people um, I have talked about it even in terms of, you know, when we've gone to stage one, stage two, what is the, what's the kind of medical authority that's been listening to, we're listening to in terms of COVID. But I think that in education, our, our call was for a task force or a partnership table so that we were assured that practitioners and experts and, you know, deans of education and directors of education and teachers and student associations were all working together to ensure that there were, the plan was, was comprehensive. And also based on education, it is very important, obviously, that we think about health and safety, but we have to think about the education piece too. And so we were surprised at the kind of primacy given to the report from SickKids. Great report, lovely in terms of health and safety. But, but you know, our concern is how are we ensuring that we're, we're that like all kids are going to have a good, strong education, that this is going beyond the kind of, yes, we were in an emergency. 
Um, but how are we going to make that plan? So, the, the, you know, the questions from your previous caller were also good ones. Um, are there going to be teams of teachers? Are teachers going to collaborate? Are some of the teachers going to be teachers in person in schools and other ones supporting online learning? But those kinds of plans need to be made with everybody at the table so that everybody understands the kind of complexity of what we're dealing with. How are principals working with teachers? How are directors of education? Where Where's the instruction coming from? And it was understandable that a little bit of chaos that's gone on for the last, you know, everybody was trying as hard as they could. But in order to have a really good coherent plan for the fall, um, it really was important that there was a one, you know, sort of cohesive group working on this. And I know the minister has been talking to people, but they've been, as far as we can see, a lot of one-off conversations and not that, um, you know, sort of collaborative approach where we're sure that we're learning from everybody's experience too that they've had in the last three months. And, I, you know, so we're worried about for boards now, again, that it's the onus is being put on boards uh, to come up with a plan and, and obvious, and I'm sure boards... Are the boards not the best people to come up with that plan, though, I, since every situation is different? They, they are, except that the Ministry of Education controls all the funding and the right. you know, contracts. Is this going to be like another? Uh, is this going to be another teachers' contract negotiation, Annie? Is this going to no. get just as ugly as it did pre-COVID nineteen? No, I don't think so. I think that all. I hope all of us are going to be working on how do we make sure that all kids, and especially kids who were already facing barriers or maybe were, you know, uh, struggling anyway, that we're reaching all kids. That we're we're really thinking through, and we're not trying to just provide you know the sort of basics but there we're making sure that i mean we could be in this situation god forbid for a year we have to make sure kids are getting educated so how how do we do that so it's not that it's going to be a big dispute with the i don't think it is i think teachers are trying as hard as they can too but there needs to be you know if there were some kind of partnership table where we were all working together then everybody could understand everybody else's kind of issues and challenges and try and make it work and right now i'm not sure that's what's happening annie kidder has been with us people for education as always annie thank you for the time uh, be well this much. weekend okay thanks bye-bye let's get back to uh, uh some of the other issues that are uh evolving uh while we are in uh, i guess week 14 of a pandemic including the social uh unrest that we're seeing all in the wake of the tragic death of george floyd uh some cities across the u.s have started tackling some reforms when it comes to police systems uh many have been asking for uh to defund the police which of course comes with uh, lots of ramifications and 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 even the word defund represents uh many different opinions on on how this should be done uh, but what do police need to do in this country as we move forward to uh, win the trust back uh, that has been lost in some areas let's bring in dr laura huey professor of sociology uh, chair advisory council canadian society of evidence-based policing university of waterloo and is with us now laura thanks for the time hope you're doing well i am though i i'm quite frankly I think we should talk about something slightly less controversial, like, I don't know, pipelines or climate change. (laughs) 
I know. It seems like we have the weight of we have the weight of, a, of the world on us through 2020. My my son said that the other day. This is the worst year. I said, nah, all this stuff always happens. Uh, let's talk about uh, police reform and such, and in what the uh, public is is asking for. Obviously, the situation in the U.S. Uh, different than what it is in Canada. However, obviously, uh, systemic racism uh, exists here in all of our institutions. I would say, in some form or another, what do police have to do moving forward to win back the trust and the respect of people? So 100% I'm in agreement with you. Every institution across Canada, we can, we can find examples of systemic racism. So I don't think that there, that, that should not be something that's subject to any kind of doubt. The issue that I have is this idea that police have to win back trust. They have to win back trust from specific communities. Police, actually support for police is higher and it, it remains fairly high in other communities. And I, I, it's funny, um, I, I love statistics and how they're often misused or misrepresented. So we had a uh, protest in London, Black Lives Matter protest, and a lot of advocates for defund the police were arguing, well, look, this shows, you know, we need to do something here in London because we had 10,000 people come out. And that's, that's a great number, and I was happy to hear that. However, the uh, estimated population for the city of London is almost 400,000, which means that fewer than 3% of this population showed up. So it leaves sort of the issue about what the other 97% think. And what we really need is we need to have better research data on what exactly it is that people want, because currently what's happening is, and this typically happens in politics of any type, is that the loudest voices get heard. And as you pointed out, it's not even a coherent message. So defund the police runs everywhere from abolition to like completely get rid of the police to different types of reform, such as perhaps moving some funding into social work, uh, health, and so on. And that's complicated too. I mean, this is why, honestly, I think I would rather talk about fur farming. Uh, you know, it's interesting, You and I, I said this earlier on in the week, the cry is out to defund police, yet we keep asking them to do more, whether it's mental health, uh, hate crimes, cybersecurity, terrorism. Uh, and even in the wake of, of the protests to defund the police, there, there are some of the same that are saying they need to be better trained. So how do you pick and choose what you defund when we're asking them to do more every day? the T word, training. So Hmm. I have a very strange collection on the hard drive of my computer. So if I I will never travel and turn my laptop over because I'm going to get stopped for sure. That collection contains coroner's inquest documents in Ontario, British Columbia, and a couple of other provinces for every police-involved fatality. And I point that out because one of the consistent recommendations is, no matter what the situation, the consistent recommendation is better training. The police are exceedingly well trained. That's, they spend anywhere between 100 to 140 hours, potentially, depending on what it is. They have, like, there's mandatory training plus all the other supplementary training that the province requires. What we don't actually know is how much of that training is actually effective. So we are actually wasting policing resources on training that we don't know actually does anything. 
Hmm. Uh, another issue on this is police and schools, which, again, was supposed to be a proactive measure to build the relationship uh, within the community. Now that is being removed in some scenarios. Is that evidence of something that was a great idea but just didn't work? What, the, the police and schools didn't work? Yes, yes. It's not clear. So the jury's still out on that one. There's been um, there's been a recent evaluation in the Peel region looking at school resource officers. There was one in London as well, and there's been a few in a couple of other spots throughout the province. Um, not enough, I'll be blunt, not enough sustained funding has gone into these projects to do really good evaluation work. And quite frankly, it's difficult to do it. Any work to do with kids, getting in and interviewing children or even getting access to the parents. Oftentimes the school boards don't want researchers in doing this work. So we actually also don't really know what works in relation to police and schools. It might be fantastic in some places because of certain types of programs, and it might be terrible because, quite frankly, they're running DARE, which was discredited like 25, 30 years ago. So the answer is we don't know. And I'm going to be even more brutally blunt. The reason why we don't have any good public policy data on all this is because the federal and provincial government successively cut research over the past 30 or 40 years. It's only a lot of the stuff that we're talking about today. We could have started having great research on this 20 years ago. It wasn't a big government issue and it wasn't a big public issue at the time. So now we're in a policy quagmire where it's basically emotions that are running high rather than data and evidence. So how do we move forward on this? How, how if you're a, uh, any police association, how do you move forward on this? Well, so five years ago when there was this big federal push called the economics of policing at the time, the federal government said police uh, budgets are not sustainable and we need to get more effective and more efficient. Then the feds, poured zero dollars into that effort, except for they had a couple of conferences that nobody went to. So there was no additional funding for any of this, and none of the provinces except for BC stepped up and tried to fill any of those gaps. What ended up happening is a bunch of volunteers. I I used to run an organization called, as you mentioned, the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing. What we did was we got together and we said, we need to start creating this research. We can't wait for governments to do for us. And what we did was we started working with police organizations and police associations and said, look, a lot of these issues we need better research on. And it's been hit and miss. I'm not going to lie. We've had some fantastic, we've got police services here in Ontario that are actually trying to set up their own evidence-based practices. Why should anybody care about that? You have a choice. You can have police services that basically run on gut, you know, my 27 years of experience and, oh, I had this episode 37 years ago, so this is how we're going to deal with it. Or you can have police services that run based on really good, high-quality research. We're trying to go for number two, and what we hope, and I've always been very open about this, that's about reform. That is about changing the policing mindset to be open to thinking about things in, in different ways than what they've been sort of programmed to think and that takes time it's not going to happen because of defunding it's not going to happen in the next six months and i can go and scream about police till the cows come home and that's not going to make it happen 
So what we need to do is we need to like continue to support those types of efforts because if you really fundamentally want change, it's got to be driven from within. If you impose it from outside, doesn't typically last for very long. What about those within, and, and I'll use policing here because we've said this is in every, you know, systematic racism is in every institution. Uh, what about those that are enabling it? Should, is the, are the right uh, processes in place? So, you know, well, there's one bad apple. There's always one bad apple in every bunch. Well, is it up to the other apples to expose that bad one? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me this question. Because it's a big misunderstanding about the role that culture plays versus the role of individual innate behavior. Sorry to get all, I got, just put my criminology hat right on. Go for it. Um, So here's the thing. We have known there's psychological research that goes back to the 1950s about how people act in certain types of ways. And we oftentimes tend to blame culture when it's this individual behavior that we all have. Let's take, for example, uh, the bystander effect. Say we're walking down the street and we see somebody, an old lady gets pushed over by some thug. Well, we're all kind of standing there with our mouths hanging open, watching, waiting for somebody to pick up their cell phone and call the police, right? And Mm. a lot of bystander effect is behavior that we can see in a whole, whether or not, for example, let's pick on education, teachers and um, bullying amongst uh, colleagues, right? So you've got a a teacher that nobody likes, so everybody talks about her and blah, 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 right? Um, Except for the people that don't say anything because they're afraid to say anything. So that behavior happens on all these different types of institutions. Hmm. There's other other types of cognitive blocks that stop us from speaking out and reporting, sometimes fear of authority. This goes back to the 1950s. In the Floyd example, what did you have? In Mr. Fo- when, when Mr. Floyd was murdered, you had two ju- very junior police officers yeah. standing there, looked dumbstruck as a senior officer killed someone. A training officer. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. And so this is somebody, their entire, they're, they're literally, you know, talk about what we call it resort to authority, right? This idea that, we defer to people that we see as, as being in authoritative positions. So that can be a factor. There's all these different factors for why people like me, like you, and like others don't speak up. And what we need to do is, I'm sorry to keep harping on about this, but we need to, we have research, we have ideas, we need to start applying them and using them within the policing and other contexts to root out systemic racism and other systemic issues. Dr. Laura Huey has been with us, Professor of Sociology uh, and Advisory Council, Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing, University of Waterloo. Fascinating discussion, Laura. We'll chat again. Thanks so much for the time. Be well this weekend. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Stage two officially starts in uh, the Hammer. Let's bring in Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Center in the city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am doing well, thanks, and I hope uh, you are too, Scott. Uh, Stage two doesn't necessarily mean that it's New Year's Eve. What does stage two uh, mean to Hamilton? Uh, What is your message here, Paul? Well, stage two means that uh, more things are available to be open, uh, particularly in the business sector. So uh, patio space for restaurants can reopen, and uh, in fact, in Hamilton, as you know, uh, we've further... uh, incented people to look at that option by offering them the chance to apply to expand their patio space to bring more people in 
indoor seating for restaurants is still not permitted. Uh, you can go inside the restaurant only to get to the patio to pay or to use the washroom. So there's no indoor seating, but the patios are open. Uh, you know, things like some of the personal services. So uh, although it may not be the end-all, be-all, it uh, certainly has had a lot of people talking about uh, getting uh, out to uh, get haircuts, uh, personal grooming stuff done, and and uh, those things are able to reopen, as well as malls. So malls will be reopening. So more retail, more services in the community, the chance to get and actually not just do pickup and uh, and delivery from restaurants, but actually to sit down on a patio uh, in a in a safe way. Lots of guidelines around how that distancing will look. From the city's perspective, beaches are open uh, as of today, and uh, we've actually uh, now turned on uh, splash pads and our spray pads, as we call them. And uh, also, we will be working towards opening some of our pools. We're not opening all of our pools, but we have a process in place to open 14 pools across the city of Hamilton. So a number of things opening. But, uh, Scott, I always say these, these announcements are about process, not an event. It's impossible for us to, A, anticipate when these things are happening and, and do everything all at once. So there will be a period of time for things to reopen. I would expect that's the same on the business side. I certainly know it's the case on the uh, municipal side. All right. Uh, uh, kudos for the city for coming up some with some in, ingenious ideas on on how to do this, including what we've heard uh, happening in regard to patios and allowing certain establishments to ex- extend their patios into the street or into a parking lot when it is available. We know that that's happening this weekend uh, with King William. Are you worried this is going to become a hub that people will go, wow, we can go down to King William and all the restaurants are there. Are you worried this draws too many in? Like the waterfalls. <laughs> uh, you know, do I do I worry about people, you know, forgetting some of the basic rules? I suppose I always worry about it. I, you know, Scott, I'm probably paid to worry, so I'm I'm not always the best person to ask about that. What I will say is I'm I'm pleased that we're having these opportunities for things to happen, and I've also been very pleased, quite frankly, with the way Hamiltonians have. Uh, by and large, bought into uh, what is the new reality of how we interact with people, that you are are uh, uh, staying a distance apart, that uh, we're, we're wearing masks more and more. I see more and more of them in the community when you don't feel you can keep that, that two-meter separation. And, and obviously, the, the key to all this is keep washing your hands and stop touching your face, those types of things. So I, um, I, I don't worry that much because I think over these past number of weeks as things have reopened, it's all been the same, whether it's the grocery stores that never closed, whether it's some of the new activities, the tennis starting up, those types of things where we've said to people, you know what, as parks open and other spaces open, you got to keep your space and you got to keep your distance. And, you know, generally speaking, people have been okay. So, of course, we'll always be monitoring because that's the important piece. And, and uh, I just really hope that these 13, 14 weeks, uh, I understand somebody informed me today that tomorrow is uh, the, the, the 100th day of the uh, emergency mm. operations center being in, in operation. And I think over those 100 days, I think people have got this message repeatedly from myself, from Dr. Richardson and others. And if everybody does what they're supposed to do, I hope to see lots of activity in places like King William because it's uh, both time we put it, start to put money back into the hands of businesses. And it's uh, also good for us to get out and enjoy the uh, weather and enjoy each other's company in a safe way. And again, just want to reiterate, uh, although it is stage two opening it up, uh, opening up, it is not New Year's Eve. This is not swinging the gates open, and it is imperative that people still follow those guidelines that you've been preaching since day one. It is really important you follow those guidelines. And the other piece is, is that a lot of has been made about the things that are opening, but it's important to realize most of them are opening with 
with some significant modifications. Yeah. And it, it's the same with previous announcements, you know, childcare uh, reopening, but it's not the same number of spaces. Restaurants, it's not indoor dining yet. Uh, even from a, a, an amateur sport perspective, it's training, not games and scrimmages and those types of things. So uh, there are a lot of parameters. And even when our pools open up, there will be fewer and fewer people there uh, because we just can't pack them in like we used to. And, and so those are the important messages for people to, to I think take to heart and also have a bit of patience in the fact that uh, yes it says these things can reopen but as always with COVID particularly in the phase we're at now uh, restarting things and reopening things rarely means they're like the same way they would have been in June of 2019. All right good advice Um, patience and common sense of course Paul Johnson with us director of the emergency center for the city of Hamilton as we enter stage two Paul thanks for the time as always be well this weekend good luck. Same to you thanks. All right it is Friday it is time to uh, to uh, make contact with Reverend Jim Carrier uh, the Good Shepherd Church down in St. Catharines and Jimmy is with us now Jim thanks for the time hope you're doing well. I am doing well Scott. We're starting to see uh, things open up, stage two here in the hammer. Are you seeing the optimism in people? I am seeing the optimism in people. At least I'm seeing the optimism in me. Uh, yeah. I haven't been out much, but we are actually going to connect with some family that we haven't connected with in a while uh, this weekend. So I think that that's fantastic. Uh, maybe even perhaps uh, give a hug or two, which is fantastic. So I think that um, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, maybe perhaps a few months before we get completely out. But this is certainly uh, good news for us all that there have been some restrictions. Now, are the patios open yet at restaurants? Uh, The patios will be open in the restaurants, but the restaurants themselves close, and it will be very limited. It will be heavy protocol in place, but, yeah, the patios are opening up. Yeah, probably reservations might be important in order, too, but I'm excited yeah. about that. So that's like that's actually a visible thing, right? That's something we can see when we're out driving around or heading toward a mall. We can actually see more and more activity. I think that's a good thing for the heart at uh, this time of year, especially entering into we're dying outside. Are you still there, Jimmy? Do we lose him? No, I'm still here. Oh, you're still there. Okay. Uh, Jimmy, I wanted to talk about uh, the social unrest that we're seeing now. Um, Lots of questions in regard to systematic racism, which to me, if you have to keep asking this question over and over again, if there's systematic racism, maybe there is. Of course there is. Um, and, And I think for some people, it is making them feel awkward. If you feel awkward, should you not move closer to the light should you not be more engaged is that not a sign you have to find out more i think if if yeah if if we have feel awkward and we're raising questions um as people and as a society then i think that we need to look at answering those questions and systemic racism is a I, i'm not going to say a broad term is very specific but it has very many areas so what system um, are we talking about that is particularly being racist? And, and those are the things that we need to examine. And we're really not going to solve this problem until we say, look, you know, like we're all in this boat together, right? We've, we, we've made mistakes in the past. Uh, we need to move forward in a way that improves the quality of lives of every individual that we know and every individual that we don't know. 
And it's, it's just a matter of, of quality of life and how we treat one another. And I think that, um, that this racism issue that has been, as you said, has been brewing for the past, uh, well, probably brewing for years, but coming to the surface these past uh, couple of weeks, I think we should look at these and not look at them as an insult, but look at them as an advantage of improving the way we treat one another. How important is it for us to speak up? And by, by us, I mean those who are not necessarily victimized here. Well, I think it's important because we should speak up either way. I mean, in, in, even in our own personal situations, I mean, if we see something happening on the street, regardless of whether it's racism, but, but something that's not right, then, then we certainly do need, need to speak up. We need to speak up in our relationships. We need to speak up in our families. We need to speak up at the municipal level, the provincial level, the federal level. I do, you know, I mean, dialogue's not going to happen unless people speak up and, and talk honestly about, about how they think things are and, and what sort of things we can do to move forward. So I think it's important to speak up, absolutely. Are we at a turning point right now? I mean, considering uh, in the wake of the tragic George, George Floyd death, uh, considering we're still in the midst of a, a, a pandemic that we have to live with, is this a turning point for us? I mean, especially being the first crisis of a privileged generation. Uh, I think, yes, I think it is a turning point for us, um, especially, um, like you said, with this particular uh, generation. And um, and I think that um, that it's a, turn, it's a turning point for us in, in the sense not only of dialogue, but in the sense that we're becoming to realize something that perhaps some of us didn't see was there before. And I think, you know, what comes out of that turning point, Scott, if that's your question, it remains to be seen. We've seen protests before and nothing come of it, but I think that because of the Internet, because of the way we communicate around the world, that this is such a broad, wide issue, that I think it's going to result in some sort of positive response. And we may not see the complete wholeness of that in our lifetime, but certainly by the next generation. The Reverend Jim Carrier has been with us from Good Shepherd Church in St. Catharines. Make sure you check out his Facebook page and uh, follow along with him if you wish. And uh, certainly uh, view, what am I trying to say, Jim? Watch his services. They're great. Yeah. <laughs> Jim, have yourself... There you go. Uh, Jim, yeah. have a great weekend. Say hi to Jude and the family for us and be well. All right, you too. Have a great weekend. God bless. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.